0: The following is a teaching from Church of the Redeemer. We pray that you will be blessed by this teaching. Well, we've been talking about the God of miracles and uh, where we are today. This is uh, Tel Dan. It's uh, We're in a we're at a place called the Altar of Jeroboam. And I want to describe for you in just a few moments uh, why this place is so significant. But I want to draw it into, as, as we begin, I want to talk about this place and its connection to the, the topic that we're looking at together, the God of miracles. Because what I wanna talk about today is I wanna talk about how uh, how we can actually uh, miss miracles in our lives because of choices that we make. Where we are right now is a, it's a negative environment, actually. It's a very negative event that transpired here, but sometimes some of the most positive lessons you'll ever have in life come from negative events. I think all of this can look back over things, mistakes that you made in your life, and you learn some, if you're wise, you learn some valuable lessons from making mistakes, right? And so even in the most negative stories of the Bible, they're positive lessons. That's why I love the Bible because it doesn't just whitewash everything. It tells you the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, you see the great things people do and you see the not so great things people do. And where we are today is one of those moments where it's not so great, what happens here. And to understand the story we're gonna read in just a moment, if you wanna go get your Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, is where we're gonna be uh, in the next few moments here. But I need to kind of bring you some history Uh, that our tour guide brought us a moment ago, but I wanna draw it back to your attention just for a bit because the story really doesn't make a lot of sense uh, without knowing the history of it. The first king of Israel was a man by the name of Saul. And Saul uh, was appointed by Samuel to be the first king. God anointed Saul to be this first king. He started out in a great way, but over a period of time, Saul went downhill and began to do all kinds of terrible, wicked things. And God raised up the second king of Israel. Anybody remember his name? David, exactly right. So Saul reigned for 40 years. Uh, David then reigned for 40 years. And then uh, David had a son by the name of Solomon who took over the kingdom after his reign. And Solomon reigned for 40 years. So between Saul, David, and Solomon, there was 120 years of, uh, of history of the people of God. When Solomon died, what happened was, for a variety of reasons, it was not really clear in terms of who was going to take over the kingdom next. And so uh, So Solomon had a son by the name of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was appointed to become the next king. But because of some choices that were made in that moment, uh, you can go back and read about this in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, Rehoboam was not the wisest guy in the world. you think that if you have a wise dad, you'd be a wise son, right? But just because you have a wise father doesn't make you a wise son. Just because you have a wise son doesn't mean you're a wise father, okay? And so uh, here is Rehoboam, and he's not so wise, so he makes some bad decisions. And out of his bad decisions, there's this tension that begins to develop between uh, Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, and a man by the name of Jeroboam. Now, it sounds like they're brothers. They're not. Okay, Rehoboam and Jeroboam are not brothers. They're not cousins. They're not in the same family, even though they have the same Boam. Okay, uh, uh, so there are two different people. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Jeroboam had been in Solomon's administration, and so he he knew the the family. He was a part of it. And so Jeroboam begins to create tension with Rehoboam, and there's the split of the kingdom, and that's where we have the divided kingdom for the first time. And Rehoboam takes over the southern kingdom, what we call the kingdom of Judah. And, Jer- and Jeroboam takes the 10 tribes to the north, and so that is the split in history when we've now, between Saul, Solomon, Saul, David, and Solomon, we've had a united kingdom, but now the kingdom is split, and that's why you read many times in the Bible, uh, Judah being referred to, Judah is referred to as the southern kingdom, and then the northern t- uh, 10 tribes are called the tribes of Israel, okay, at that particular p- time after the split of history. So Jeroboam comes to the north, where we are now, in this area coming up north uh, from Jerusalem, all in the southern kingdom and Jeroboam comes to the north and he establishes two places of worship Bethel and Dan uh, where are we today we're in Dan okay and he was quite concerned because he at that point in time when you wanted to worship where would you go to worship Everybody went to Jerusalem to worship. So Jerusalem was the place that you go to worship. And so here's Jeroboam. He's now got a new kingdom and and Rehoboam is the king in Jerusalem. So he doesn't want his people going down to Jerusalem to worship because he's afraid that their loyalties will be pulled back to Rehoboam and he'll lose his power. And so to uh, make sure that he doesn't lose his power, he establishes two places of worship, one at Bethel and one at Dan, but he does not worship God. Jehovah God, he sets up a golden calf in these places to be worshiped because now they're going into idolatry, all right? And so now that being said, that history, let me take you now to 1 Kings chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading at verse number 26, and we'll see what happens here, right here where we are today, all right? And Jeroboam said in his heart, "Now the kingdom may return to the house of David, if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back uh, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice make uh, the king ask advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people." If I can turn my page here. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up, set up one in Bethel, the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of the people who were not of the sons of Levi. And so what happened was Jeroboam said, we're going to establish these two places of worship and we're going to put up golden calves. Now what you see in Front of me here, you see what would have been an altar to the golden calf, the four horns that were here, and what began to happen is the people came and worshipped here. They offered sacrifices. In fact, uh, through archaeological digs, they found multiplicities of uh, bones, animal bones, in this dig here, uh, where this would have taken place. So we believe this is exactly one of those environments you can say you're right in this place that you read about in 1 Kings chapter 12. And I want to draw a lesson for us in this because we're talking about the God of miracles and. I'm not sure if you've ever had a short in a, an electronic product before, but maybe in your, maybe your battery in your phone, you had it, it normally works very well and maybe you've got some applications open and it's draining your battery uh, unduly. Anybody ever had that situation before? And so your battery's going down, you're trying to figure out what's happening, I'm losing power, why am I losing power? And it's because something in the background, some circuit has been broken or some, some apps, app is operating, it's draining power, you don't realize it, but you're losing power, okay? There are things in our life that, if we're not careful, uh, can happen to us spiritually, and we begin to lose power. It's like a it's like a short circuiting in your in your spiritual life, and it keeps you from that flow of God's power. And the main thing that will happen to you, or can happen to you, that will cause a, a short circuit of your spiritual power is the very thing that happened here in this place. The people of God, instead of worshiping the one true God, they turn to idolatry. Everybody say idolatry with me. Now, we very easily can look at this and say, well, yeah, that's idolatry, people bowing down to a golden calf. I'm not an idolater, I don't bow down to a golden calf, okay? I don't, I don't have shrines set up in my house that I worship. Well, that's not really what idolatry is. Idolatry is putting anything before or above God. Say it with me. Idolatry is putting anything above God or before God, anything above Him or before Him, okay? What was the very first commandment that God gave His people through Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. So God said, here's what I want you to understand. If your life is gonna go well, if you want my power and my blessing, you've gotta make sure that nothing comes before me or nothing is placed in your life above me. I've got to be first because when I am first, when there's no other gods before me in your life, that's the pathway to blessing and that's the pathway to power. When you and I put anything in our life before God, or above God, then we're setting ourselves up for the loss of spiritual power or we're committing idolatry uh, before God because something's before God. Now, this is, is why is this so important? Because God established life to be ordered in a certain way, okay? Think about it, maybe you've had this experience before. You've put on your shirt or your blouse in the morning, you weren't paying attention to exactly what you were doing and you got your second or your third button in the first hole. Anybody ever had that happen before, okay? You got like your second buttons up in the first hole, and like you something's wrong with my shirt. It doesn't feel right. And you feel a little weird and like a little offside like this, okay? You're gonna walk in this way. What's going on? Because I've got the wrong button in the wrong hole, and you reorder your buttons and everything flows well, right? So, how many of you know the first button's supposed to go in the first hole, right? Okay, that's the way it works. It orders your life well. Well, God says if you got your life ordered well, then then you no other gods before me, then everything else can flow as it needs to flow. As if you want a great Marriage, put me first, okay? If you want God's blessing in your finances, put me first. If you want God's blessing in your business, put me first. Let me let me be the first place in your life and let there be no other gods before me, and then life flows well following that one choice. That beginning point sets the course of everything else in your life. If you don't get the first thing right, none of your other buttons will be right, correct? Okay? If the first button's not right, none of the other buttons are gonna be right, okay? And so here's the thing I want to remind you of here at Tell Dan and at these altars of Jeroboam. No, we're not bowing down to golden uh calves. No, we don't do that anymore, but we still commit idolatry. And we commit idolatry by letting other things be before us, before God, I should say. How do you know if you've got something else before God? Well, one way that you know that is your life starts going amiss, okay? You start being out of sync and life seems like something's not quite working right. You're out of sync with God and oftentimes when you, when you get out of sync with God, you get out of sync with people, right? And other, another way to tell if you have an idol in your life is something else is more important to you than God, okay? And you begin to worry about the loss of something else over the loss of your relationship with God. What is the thing that would grieve you most? What is the loss in your life that would grieve you the most? If the loss in your life that would grieve you the most is not your loss of relationship with God, then God's not the top button. The thing that you should want less than anything else is the, and have the appropriate fear of is losing a relationship with God. And my challenge for us here today, I'm going to bring it to a point of a prayer and a ministry ministry point here in just a moment. But I want you to think about your life. All of us here, all of us that will be watching this together. We need the God of miracles, the God of power at work in our life every day, correct? We want God working in us, so I wanna make sure that my life is ordered. I've got my first button where it needs to be, that God is in the top spot of my life. I don't want any other person to come before God. I don't want any possession to come before God. I don't want my pride to come before God. I don't want anything in my life to come before God at all because when I order God in that right measure, He's number one, that everything else can flow well and the power of God can work effectively in our lives. Well, welcome everyone to the Mount of Beatitudes. And the Mount of Beatitudes really commemorates uh, the location where Jesus gave us what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of those locations where if it's not right here, it's certainly near right here where Jesus would have been. So we, we can't verify that this is the exact location, but it was somewhere close to this vicinity where Jesus would have come with His disciples and a large group of people and given them what we know to be Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read a portion of scripture that this area is named after, the Mount of Beatitudes. As you can see, uh, not too far from here, right across this view here, those that can see to my left, your right, you can see the lake there. And so Jesus would have uh, been here with his disciples and the crowds. And as I'll read for you down through verse 13, what's known as the Beatitudes. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside, very similar to where we are here, and sat down. His disciples came to Him and He began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God." Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus speaks this particular message, the Sermon on the Mount, at a time when he was gaining popularity. Uh, in his ministry and lots of folks were beginning to follow him because he's healing the sick and doing all kind of amazing miracles and so people are quite interested in being around Jesus obviously and it's extremely important that Jesus now begins to differentiate himself from what people perceive to be Uh, the Messiah, because for for most Jews living during that time, the anticipation of their Messiah was someone coming in great power that would conquer Rome and drive Rome out and be sort of a military kind of leader or someone that would turn the, the external culture around. So Jesus wanted to make sure that His disciples understood that His kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom was a different kind of kingdom. He was not coming as a Messiah who was there to overturn power. It was not a political thing that He was doing. He was coming to change the hearts of men. And that's extremely important to understand that when Jesus works in our lives, He always works from the inside out. Jesus comes to conquer more importantly than anything else. He comes to conquer you and me on the inside. Because the biggest problem that all of us have really is the problem we have with ourselves. And the biggest miracle that will ever happen in your life is the transformation that happens on the inside of you by Jesus' work in you by His Holy Spirit so Jesus brings his disciples up on this mountain and the crowds came and he sat down. The reason he sat down is because a, a rabbi during those days would often sit down to teach. It was sort of a seat of authority. And so Jesus sat down, and he began to teach the disciples this very important lesson and he gave them what we know to be the Beatitudes. Say that phrase with me, the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. There are eight beatitudes. There's one significant word you find in all the eight beatitudes. That's the word blessed. Blessed, 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 blessed. Eight times Jesus said blessed or blessed as we might say the word. The actual Greek word that's used there is the word makarios and that word makarios is a word that really describes, uh, it's, it's more than a happiness, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an inner contentment, it's a sense of having a sense of joy and fulfillment on the inside, not based upon circumstances but based upon a, a well-being internally. We often think of the word happy and we think of being happy by the events that happen. And in fact, that's why we sp- we speak of happiness because we're happy when certain things happen the way we want them to happen. But Jesus teaches us that happiness, real makarios, blessedness, comes from something that happens on the inside. And he gave us eight qualities. He, he described it for the people during those days and for us as well that you and I need to remember that will help us to understand what Jesus really is all about in our lives. So I'm gonna quickly walk you through these eight characteristics that Jesus speaks of here. He starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. He was helping under people to understand the importance of coming to God with a poverty, a sense that you really need him. Actually, actually the Greek word that's used there for poor in spirit describes a beggar. That you're, not, that you're in a place of life where you know that you need God more than anything else. Because when you and I come to that place that we really know that we need God more than anything else, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that we gain access to the kingdom, grace, and power of God by coming to, to Him with a spirit of humility and brokenness and poverty before Him. And then blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. The word mourn there speaks of a mourning that you would have as you you have a loss of a loved one. But the idea uh, that's spoken of by Jesus at this point really I think describes an attitude of repentance. Blessed are those that know how to mourn over their sinfulness. Jesus was not telling us to be morbid about the fact that we feel uh, sorry for being sinners, but we need to recognize that and acknowledge our sinfulness because it's only in the acknowledgement of our sinfulness that we can look toward a Savior who can save us from our sins. And so if you don't realize that you need a Savior, you'll never look for a Savior. And so there's a sense of repentance that you and I need to live live with. And repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's when you and I recognize at any point in our journey that we're away from God or thinking differently than God. The word repentance is a word that means to change your mind and to turn back toward the right kind of thinking. So he says, blessed are those that mourn, those that know how to repent. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness... The Greek word for meekness is the word praus, and that word speaks of uh, power under control. Meekness is not weakness, but meekness is power under control. There's self-control. Blessed are the meek, because when you and I learn how to let God rule in us, and we learn to gain control of ourselves through the power of Christ within us, then there's a self-control that allows us to inherit, that is to to gain things in life that you can gain no other way than through that meekness and self-control that comes. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. There's a hunger. that God gives you, that you pursue the right kinds of things. So many people in our world today are hungry for the wrong things, and they're filling themselves up with the wrong things. But God says blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let that be the primary hunger of your life. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Obviously, during those days, they were looking for a Messiah that would come and judge the Romans and make them pay for all that they'd done. But Jesus said, no, I'm coming as the God of love, the God of mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. And Jesus calls us to live with a spirit of mercy toward people and compassion toward those that have needs in their life. And Jesus is compassionate toward us as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's purity of motives to make sure that you do the right things for the right reasons. You know, you and I can do the right things, but sometimes we do them for the wrong reasons. You can do the right things but not do them from a pure heart. And so he says, take a look at what's going on in your heart. Examine what happens on the inside of you. What's motivating your life? Are you motivated by pure motives? And then blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. That is, God is a God of peace. He wants us to learn how to make peace, not bring division and strife. The opposite of a peacemaker is a troublemaker. And so we want to be people who are learning how to, from our lives, our inner world, we make peace. And you can't make peace around you unless there's peace inside of you. And so it starts with the peace inside of your heart. And then blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He talks about uh, being blessed because we know how to take a stand for God, that we're able to, in the midst of a world that is contrary to our faith, that we're, we are willing to stand up and identify with Jesus Christ, even if it means persecution in our lives. Now again, why did Jesus take time to teach this? Because he wanted us, his disciples, those that were following him as he is entering in, as beginning his early stages of ministry, and for us as well to realize that the greatest change that will ever happen in our lives is the change that happens on the inside. The greatest miracle that will ever happen in your life is a miracle that happens inside you, the change that happens in your heart. And Jesus never starts with behavior. See, religion starts with behavior. Religion says change your behavior and hope your heart changes. Jesus turns it around and says change your heart and your behavior will change. Any person that's in Christ is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. It's a change that happens on the inside. And so what I want to remind us of today is that we're talking about the God of miracles. And the greatest miracle that will ever happen in any of our lives is the miracle of opening our heart to Jesus Christ. And I always like to, to make this an opportunity or at least take some opportunity while we're in Israel. And for those that will be watching this by by video as well, to just stop for a moment and ask the question, have you really invited Jesus Christ into your life. Has there been a point in time when you've you've turned your life over to Christ? I'm not talking about religion, okay? Religion is an external set of rules and rituals that if I go through these rules and follow these rules and if I obey these rituals, these religious rituals, I'm going to be okay with God. Somehow God's going to love me and accept me into heaven because I've done the right rules. I followed the rules and I've kept the right rituals. That's not the way it works with Jesus. The way it works with Jesus is that Jesus says, I want you to put your faith in me and what I have done for you on the cross of Calvary and in my resurrection. And when you put your faith in me, even though you are a rule breaker, okay? And all of us are rule breakers. We've sinned against God. That he now has paid the price for our sins. And you and I invite him into our life and we're changed from the inside out. And so if you've never invited Christ into your life, and I'm assuming that all of us have, but there's always a possibility, of course those that perhaps are watching my video, if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, I want to encourage you today to let go of religion. You're never going to get to heaven by religion. Religion will not get you to heaven. A relationship with God through Jesus is what gets you to heaven, and it happens. It changes you on the inside. It changes your attitudes, and then when your attitudes of your heart change, then your behavior begins to change, and then you are able to impact the world around you. We just took a look on the inside of the, uh, the room for the Last Supper. There are a lot of different things that happened here at this particular place. And I want to uh, talk today about one specific thing that is, I think, so vital to our Christian faith and so vital to this whole idea of God doing miracles as a part of our lives. In the Old Testament, one of the things that was vital to the people of God there was the temple. And the temple was always the desire for the temple was always that it would be filled with the glory of God. That was the desire that the people of God had, that when they would worship, they desired that God's glory would fill the temple. And there are various times in Scripture that you see references to the glory of the Lord filling the temple. When we come to the New Testament, it's very important to understand that Jesus came to fulfill every aspect of the law so that God would not be in a physical temple, but God would be in in the temple of our hearts and lives. And so that's why the Apostle Paul made it very clear that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we are the people who receive the presence of God at work in our lives. And so this is why this room is so important, because it reminds us of the first moment when God filled His temple, that's being you and me, human beings, with His glory and with His presence. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And the one place they were together is this very room. Actually, not this very room, but one very much like it, as as was described. Uh, And they were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these uh, who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, "What does this mean?" Some, however, made fun of them and said they have made, they've had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, all of you who've lived in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And there Peter began to preach the gospel to these individuals. And at that day, 3,000 people were accepted Christ and came into faith in Jesus. Now, there are lots of different things we could talk about today here in this place because we were just a few days ago in Galilee. You might recall that we were at, the, at that seashore of Galilee when I reminded you of how Jesus showed up and restored Peter, right? And he restored Peter after Peter denied him. And just a few days later, they're back in Jerusalem again in this upper room waiting to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they were filled with the Holy Spirit in this room, very much like this room, in this very place where we are, we know for def- for sure this is the place that they were, the room would have been a bit different, but we're in the actual place where it would have happened. And in that day, when the Spirit of God came in, everybody was filled with the Holy Spirit. What I want you to see, this is amazing, and it's hard to not stop and just have a praise party right here, because we didn't have to wait for the Spirit or the glory of God to fill a physical building, a temple, but God came and filled up every believer in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing to think about that we actually became the recipients of the glory of God living inside of us. I'm not sure if you've stopped to think about that recently, but the value, the the power, the impact of the fact that God himself lives inside of you, that by his Holy Spirit, he lives in you. It's not just enough to have that, that, that recognition, but we need to also move beyond that and ask that God would fill us with the the power of his Holy Spirit. That day when these disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, everything changed. See, just a few days earlier, Peter had denied Jesus and said, I don't know him. But now, because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, after he's filled, he spills out to the streets of Jerusalem where they're celebrating the Passover feast. And Peter has has absolute boldness to speak the gospel of Christ. There's no fear in him. He's not denying the Lord anymore. Why? Because he's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And dear ones, what's important for us to remember is that we cannot live the Christian life in our own power. See, the Christian life was designed to be lived with the power of God at work within us. And one of the most beautiful things that you and I can do as we come to faith in Christ is to continually ask God to fill us with the presence and power of the Spirit of God. It is a command that the Apostle Paul gave us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He said, Do not be drunk with wine, wherein that leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart unto God. So the command that God has given to us is that we would not only recognize that the presence of the Spirit is in us through Christ, but you and I would actively seek to be filled with the Spirit because you and I cannot live the Christian life that God called us to live, to be bearers of the witness of Christ that we're called to bear, to do the things that Jesus wants us to do in our own strength and power. I think that you would acknowledge with me this afternoon that we are all weak. Would you agree? Okay. We're weak in our flesh. In fact, Jesus reminded us that the, that the flesh is weak. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need something to empower us from the inside. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus said, if if the if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? All he wants us to do is to come to him with a hungry heart to say, God, we're seeking you. These, these 120 believers As they gathered in this upper room, and they waited for the Spirit of God to come upon them, they had this characteristic of spiritual hunger. This reminds us of what we learned at the Mount of Beatitudes just a few days ago as well, where Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When you get hungry for God to fill you with His Spirit, when you get thirsty for God to fill you with His Spirit, and you ask Him to do that, He will send His Spirit upon you and empower you to do things that you can not do otherwise, to live the life that Jesus wants you to live. And I always like to remind people when we come to this place, this upper room, there are lots of different things that we can talk about here. The Last Supper, uh, the the reappearance of Christ to the disciples, uh, the the proof to Thomas that uh, that Jesus was indeed alive. All those things happen in this place. But the thing I'd like to remind all of us of is that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and God desires to fill you with the presence and power of his spirit. And when he fills you with the presence and power of his spirit, you are now enabled to be strong in Christ, to do things that you cannot do otherwise. It transformed Peter from a guy that denied Christ to a guy that stood up in front of 3,000 people and preached Jesus boldly and stood boldly for Christ until he was ultimately martyred for his faith. It transformed a man. Just the filling of the Holy Spirit will transform you in ways that you cannot be transformed any other way. And my hope and prayer for all of us here in this place... Going from this place and going forward into our future, for all that are watching this, is that you would develop a hunger and a thirst every day of your life to say, "God, I'm asking you to fill me with the Holy Spirit." If you ask Him to fill you, I promise you that He will answer that prayer. You say, "Well, what happens when you're filled with the Spirit?" I'm not here today to talk about all the different ways and things that happen when you're filled with the Spirit. There there are various things the Bible speaks of in terms of the gifts of the Spirit that happen in your life that come as a part of that. But the most important important thing is I want more of God in me. How about you? I want God to control my life and to fill me to overflowing. And he will do that if you will ask him. So can I invite you right here in this place where over 2000 years ago, 120 believers gathered in this room. And on, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit of God swept into that room like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire set down on the heads of every believer there. They began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. They spilled out to the streets of Jerusalem and preach the gospel and 3,000 souls were saved. Think about what God could do with us, just this group and those that are watching, if we were fully filled with the presence of God's Holy Spirit each and every day. So would you join me as we ask God this day and as we go forward from this place and the days to come, that we would live a life filled with God's Holy Spirit. Would you say, God, I'm hungry for the Spirit of God to work inside of me. I don't want just a little bit. I want to be filled up to overflowing. Each day of your life, just remember that one of the best ways to start your day as you're beginning your time with God in the morning, whether it's a long time each morning or a short time, to always as you walk out that door, God, I'm asking you to empower me with your Holy Spirit this day so I can live for you. And I promise you that's a prayer that God will answer in your life. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray and You can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out, and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God, and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus, I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash you We pray that this message was a blessing to you.